Media. This is Coming Out Stories. It's a podcast about one of the most important conversations of your life. I'm Emma Goswell. Time now to hear from Christine Burns, MBE, and author of Trans Britain, Our Journey from the Shadows. She first came out in 1958 at the tender age of four. I have come out so many times. Where do you start? Which one do you start with? The Mm. one I start with nowadays, because what I'm I'm doing now is saying that actually when I was born in 1954, I'm 65, it was about the time that a lot of stories about trans people started coming into the the mainstream. Mm. And when I was about four, four and a half maybe, just before I started school, so I can pin it quite well, I remember telling my mum that I wanted to grow up to be a lady. Wow. And... uh, yeah, she was very good. She just sort of brushed it off and made a little bit of fun. And then I got quite upset and I ran off upstairs and uh, my dad came and saw me later. And uh, But it was sort of, they, they, they treated it very lightly. And I realised, it was telegraphed to me, that, that this wasn't something you said. But it was there very strongly. And you said it, you articulated yeah. it at the age of four. Yeah, and that, I, This is probably the earliest coming out I've ever heard of, actually. <laughs> Coming out at the age of four. But, but, wow. I, but I immediately went back in again yeah. because because you you get these signals from from the grown ups around you uh, and from school as well that these that there are certain things you don't say. Well, I guess they sound like they just sort of laughed it off, really. They did, and I and I was a child who was easily embarrassed, and I was quite quiet and shy, and so I sort of I just took it in and filed it as mustn't say that. And of course, this was the 1950s. They wouldn't have had any points of reference, no. really. Not like parents might have today. 1958, uh, yeah. as I say, you know, just after I was born, there was a story in the press of a, a trans woman called Roberta Cowell, and that was quite famous. And it also been somebody called Christine Jorgensen, who was mm. globally famous for her transition. I mean, my parents didn't read the newspapers very much anyway. No, no I so, guess I guess you came to find out about those women a lot later on. Yourself. I did. I mean, actually, if we, if we just spool forward from four, four years old to 12 years old, 1966, my parents have got a pub. I used to have a lot of time on my hands, which actually was quite good because it meant that I could uh, dress up if I wanted to uh, without anybody sort of catching me. Mm. But I remember my, my dad used to send me to get the Sunday papers. And as soon as I got to the news agents, there was a sign outside. I said, you know, my life as a, as, a, as a girl or my life as a woman. This was the story of April Ashley mm. in the papers. And you, know, you immediately spot this. If you, if you are trans, you are sort of tuned to seeing anything like that. So I got, grabbed the papers, ran home. And again, I can picture the exact scene in the kitchen, kneeling on the carpet. My parents were downstairs serving customers and I'm reading all about April Ashley. And as you said, we didn't have any points of reference other than maybe seeing female impersonators on the television. You know, um, I've forgotten these. Danny LaRue. Gosh, which is not quite the same thing. No, no, that's right. Not even slightly. But it is Mm. where everybody got their points of reference from. Mm. You know, if that's all you understand about trans people is uh, is a man who cross-dresses for for entertainment. You know, that's... Mm. So, yeah, and and in that moment, I discovered A that I wasn't the only person like me in the world because I did actually worry that that you know, was uniquely freakish and that there was a name for people like me and because I was reading it in the news of the world that it was a very bad thing to be. Oh, of course. 
So well, that's been going on from time immemorial. Time immemorial, yes. Mm. And that's the only way that the, the press actually reported trans people in those days as well. They'd, they'd hit on a formula. Going back to around about 1958, they'd found that they could sell Sunday papers by doing shock horror exposés of trans people in the Sunday tabloids. That was that was how we were represented. So she hadn't chosen to speak to them or sell her, st- her story? It was sort of just written um, about her? Roberta uniquely had actually chosen mm. to sell her story. Uh, I think she needed the money. Mm. Um, I've been told that what she got for her series in the Picture Post in 1954 was, uh, in today's terms, about £200,000. Wow. So she did well out of that. Okay. But these were, you know, these were big stories. They weren't the first stories, as it happens, but they were, you know, they were the time when suddenly the press noticed that trans people existed. OK, so just to rewind on something that you said a moment ago. So between the ages, between the age of four, you knew... Yes. ..that you wanted to grow up to be a woman. Yeah. And at the age of 12, you realised you weren't the only one. But in between those times, you said you were you were dressing up. Is that what you did? Yes, because my uh, my elder sister, who's 10 years older than me, that had, had left home many years since, uh, and quite a lot of her clothes were still in, 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 in dressing tables and wardrobes. Mm. So I actually had a complete you know, wardrobe to play with. And I had hours and hours and hours on my own because my, my parents got a pub when I was about 11 years old, and I had to learn to look after myself. So I'd do my homework, and then the rest of the evening was mine. So I could, yeah, I wasn't completely unsupervised, which is a a degree of freedom I think most children of that age would never have had. And did you ever get caught? Did anyone know what you were doing? No, and I don't think there was any suspicion of... of, Mm. I was very careful. Again, Mm. I think that probably tells you that, you know, I knew that this was something that would bring the, the ceiling down, bring the sky down on me if, if mm. anybody knew. And, and I don't know where we get those intimations from because I've listened to other people you've interviewed and it's the same sort of thing that we all know that what we are apparently is bad. Well, I think particularly for gay people and, and well, the LGB part of our community, they're hearing it in the playground all the time. Mm. You know, even now, kids in the playground go, oh, I don't like that chair, it's gay. You know, yeah. and they're being told constantly from a young age, gay is bad. But I don't even think that probably at school they were saying anything about trans no, people, they were they? They were almost they, so they, invisible. They, were, they quite often called me a girl and mm. they, they, they had a girl's name for me sometimes because I think children actually before the adults were reading me because of my mannerisms, because of the way I talk, because I was quiet and I was bookish. So you got um, bullied? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I've got... I can you know, write a book on bullying. I got, and I went through a lot of schools. That was the only thing that saved me to an extent. My parents were moving around a lot because they were buying houses to renovate. We lived in them. And then when they'd renovated the house, they sold it for a profit and then mm. moved on to something bigger. They were working their way up from... our our working class beginnings. So I was constantly experiencing new schools and having to be sussed out by new groups of children. And I very quickly became the kid that got bullied. And when they called you female names, did it hurt you or did you you secretly pleased? It was a bit of a mixed feeling, really. Yeah, yeah, because I knew it was meant to hurt. So, So I took it as hurt. And I was trying to deny myself I mean, you know, if you mm. realise you've got something that that makes you, I don't, I can't find a polite word for it really, but uh, you know, you you know, you're a bit, in the world's terms, a freak. 
therefore you don't want to be that. I wanted to, you know, the first thing I really wanted to do was to grow up and be ordinary. So, so I guess it was a very long process then to go from that sort of scared 12-year-old that at least realises there's someone else out mm. there and you're not the only person in the world that's trans to then actually articulating it as a teenager or an adult. Yes, I mean, the next step was when I was 18, I, I left home. We, we were in the southeast of England and I came up to Manchester to go to university. I came here in 1972 and I've been here more or less ever since. So I think I, I, I can claim to be a northerner now. What um, I love about your story is that you just say went to university. You only studied with Alan Turing's colleagues at the <laughs> School of Computer Science. Yes. It couldn't really get more gay, could it really? No, I suppose not. But I didn't. again, I didn't realise, you know, looking back, had I realised, I think I would have had a very different existence. I arrived in university in 1972 at the time that the Gay Liberation Front in Manchester mm. was beginning to find its feet. But it was a very straight environment. I remember my very first night in a hall of residence. The chair of the residence association of our hall stood up at dinner and, and gave instructions about the places to avoid, which were essentially the precursors of, um, of Canal Street. Avoid the gays. Yes. Yeah. For a lot of people, going to university and being away from the family is a chance to be them true selves. Mm. Did you ever feel that that was possible at that uh, stage? Yes, increasingly. I mean, for the, my first couple of years, I was living in hall. So you're actually, you know, you're very constrained because people wander in and out all the time. You don't mm. actually have, even though you have a room, you don't have much privacy. So were you doing anything then to portray yeah, only, the gender only you identify sort with? Of co covertly, really. First, it was because I'd, I'd got myself uh, some, uh, some wheels, I'd got, a, I'd got a car, and that meant I could get away into, mm. play, into, into remote places where I could just imagine being me. I mean, it's very, it's very amateur. It's, I, you know, I feel ashamed of how ashamed I was, but there were no role models. The only role models actually were having read about April Ashley in the newspapers, and that wasn't a good thing. And then in 1974, so I was 20 then, there was a an, an autobiography by a Times journalist, uh, Jan Morris, who had spent the better part of 10 years transitioning. And they both ended up going to a surgeon in Casablanca, and I don't know if anybody's old enough to remember this, but in the, in the 1970s, we didn't go abroad. You know, the mm. only way to go abroad was probably to join the armed forces. We didn't have holidays in Mallorca or whatever uh, until the very first you know, package tour company came along. Mm. Yeah, um, different times. Yeah, so they thought that you would go to somewhere in North Africa I only knew about Casablanca because of the film, mm. so I always think about the place in black and white. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, so the whole, but the whole thing of surgery then probably seemed out of your reach. That's yeah? right. It was yeah. something that a different kind of people did. But you knew about other trans people then. Did you ever make any attempt to contact other well, trans people? Yes, and that's another thing that happened in 1974. A, a group had just been set up in Manchester on Camp Street. Brilliant. So I, so I had no, I had no difficulty remembering the address. Yeah, but. I went there and I sort of staked it out from across the road, saw people coming and going and my heart's going thump, 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 thump mm. in, my, in my chest and am I going to go in? No, I shan't. Yes, I shall. 
And eventually I plucked up the courage and uh, knocked on the door. And actually, what do you ask for? You know, is you know, uh, are you the transsexual group or whatever? So it's because, of course, people were transsexuals rather than transgendered, weren't they, for a long right. time? Yes. Mm. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I went in, and with, there was a back room, and I remember there it was it was fairly seedy. There was uh, there was a settee with springs coming out of the sofa. Mm. Um, there were cracked mugs with the tea. It was very much a, you know, about. Uh, just people just being relieved to meet like meet somebody like themselves. Well, it must have been a huge relief because this must be the first time that you've met another adult and articulated. Right. Yes, this and was... realised that I could talk to to be people and actually find some 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 connection. So that was kind of your first coming out as trans, then, really. Coming out definitely to myself in mm. a way, because you know, to go to that actually meant acknowledging to myself that I wanted to talk to people like myself. And how old were you at this stage? Twenty. So that's so, 16 years of knowing yeah, so, and not being able to do anything about that's it. That's right. That's a long wait. It is, yeah. So what happened after that? Well, I, again, I left it a few years because because actually being able to go and see that group periodically was a sort of like a, a safety valve. It was an opportunity. You know, it was going round and round in my head. You know when you've got an earworm mm. and you can't get it out? Well, it's the same, it's the same sort of thing. And I'd say, yeah, yeah I'm going to go there this Wednesday and, and talk to people. Was it a big group? Were there many people? It, it, initially, it wasn't, but it grew. So I remember towards the beginning of the 80s, I think there used to be about 30 people there. Well, then. and this isn't relevant to your story, but I'm just interested, and other people might be. How, how many were people that were born male but that identified as female, and how many were the actually vast, the other way around? You've got to distinguish between people who went to that group hmm. and what the community might be. Because mm. because just as I tended to think, I'm not sure whether this group is for me because the group was dominated by people who just cross-dressed once a week and it was their relaxation. And they sat around and they would talk about steam engines and computers. Which is a different thing, being yeah, cross-dressed and right. being transgender. But, but, but uh, as I've written in my book, Trans Britain, transsexual people were such a small community mm that beggars can't be choosers. We didn't have our own yeah. groups. But it must have been nice to even have that safe space where you could dress as a woman and be That's a woman. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been quite a revelation for you, really. It, it, it was, and, I, and I, it actually sort of hammered home to me because one of the things you might think to yourself is, well, maybe I could just be a cross-dresser and mm. I could contain it to you know, the occasional evening and then put it away in a box mm. and... Yeah, that's that. That will be enough, and that won't mean the potential of losing my friends, losing my job, losing everything. Um, which and that's was, really what you thought you were which facing. Which was the prospect? Mm. Yes. I, otherwise, I was in um, yeah, as a research student in Manchester in the mid seventies. I was enjoying myself. I was producing a, a radio show for Radio Manchester. I was doing my research. I liked the people I worked with, but I didn't think anybody would accept me if I actually said, you know, I'm going to, to transition to mm. be a woman. So what changed? Because at some point you obviously did. Well, in 1976, I came very close to the first attempt to transition permanently. I actually found a doctor and quite scarily, the doctor just said, yeah, we think you're transsexual and there's uh, somebody I can refer you to. Come back next week and tell me if you want me to do that. Mm. And that was so scary that I actually gave up my PhD study and ran away, effectively. Oh, because someone had given you the yeah, opportunity that because, you'd always because, wanted? Yeah, 
uh, it meant facing up to all the, 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 the prospects. And I was pretty sure of what the prospects would be, that, you know, that I wouldn't be able to continue being a research student or go on to be a lecturer. I wouldn't. Uh, be allowed near a microphone on the on the BBC again on all those things and so in a way actually it became a self-fulfilling prophecy because I ran away from all of them anyway. Well could you not have finished your PhD and then transitioned or you didn't you were so excited and eager to do it? It was so no it was was just having uh, once you've sort of acknowledged to yourself Mm. that much that this is what you are then you can't put it back in the box. No, there's no going back. And the only going away was an act of desperation, saying to myself, I'll get a job in industry and I'll make another start and we'll have no more of this. You ran away. Where did yeah. you go? Uh, I, I got a job with a computer company called International Computers and I went to join them as writing courses and books down in Windsor. Didn't actually stay there for very long because it was because uh, it, it was I was very lonely there even though I was surrounded by colleagues, hmm. uh, and so I ended up managing to engineer within the same company to come back to Manchester so I could be near the people I'd left. So at what point did you admit it to yourself and then actually tell other people that this is what you were well, going to do? Well, the next stage was I got so desperate that I actually um, told my parents. Again, I was trying to sort of cut off my lines of escape from myself, hmm. um, so I got. Very drunk one night and about three o'clock in the morning, I rang my parents and um, I was again, for, for some reason, I always seem to do this stuff kneeling on the carpet with the phone in front of me. <laughs> and uh, and my father answered the phone and I said, Dad, I, you know, I've got to tell you, I want I want to be a girl. I want to be a woman. And I, was, I think I laugh now looking back. He said, uh, he said, you better speak to your mother. Is that all he said? <laughs> So she came on the phone and and what she said to me uh, has always stuck with me. She said, darling, she said, uh, we made you and whatever you are, we'll love you. And it's wonderful. It is. And I actually become quite distanced from my parents. I don't know whether that was because I was angry with them for for perceiving that they would be a barrier that because I thought if I come out, because that moment on that f- phone call, I thought, I'm about to lose my parents. You know, I might not ever see them, see them mm. again. Because that happens so often to people. Uh, but so that's a mark of my desperation, that I actually felt it had come to the point that I was actually prepared to lose my parents. How old were you at this stage then? Um, I'm just trying to think that one through. I think that was around about 1982. Mm. So I was just under 30. Gosh, so you had waited a long time I then, had, hadn't you? Because because I'm very good at sort of trying to distract myself. I was I worked very hard. I had these mitigating ways of um, of of trying to pretend it was just something I could handle. And did they accept it then? Do you think they did actually? Because because I went down to see them. Uh, they lived in Kent still, uh, and they met me, Christine. Mm-hmm. And I remember we said, spent the evening uh, sitting, uh, having drinks and chatting and talking about everything. And my mum just immediately sort of just clicked into, this is my daughter. They were incredibly good at that. And I'd completely misread them. So they never misgendered you after that? Then? No, because I'd, I'd just assumed from the things that you pick up from listening to what they say when they see something on the television or what they read in the papers, mm. you know, that, that they would... You know, disapprove and uh, because they had been disapproving about other things, not about me, 
but they, they certainly disapproved of things that my older sister had done. So I just expected that that was going to be the mark. I don't know whether from the, from that experience with my sister, they'd sort of learned and thought, you know, we should we should, we should just loosen up a bit here. Yeah. They sound very respectful. I mean, even today, a lot yeah. of parents do struggle and misgender their they children, do. don't they? They do. Yeah. I think, yeah, they, they, they had to work hard to try and get themselves some information. My mum was proud of the number of local police that she could cultivate as friends. So she went to see a local sergeant and she told him and he explained it all to her. And I think her getting it from an official, official she looked up to. Really? Uh, yes, okay. police sergeant. She thought, okay, that's okay. This is this has a name. This uh, is a condition. And and this sergeant knew all about it then. Yeah, somehow. So <laughs> wow. just as well, you know, if he'd said, you know, for God's sake, you know, hold them there until I get round with the handcuffs. It yeah. Might have been different. God. So, <laughs> so did you ever come out at work then? Um, well, well I started. Obviously. I started planning for that then. Mm. Again, I thought the you know, the chances were that my colleagues wouldn't know what to what to do with me. Uh, so I, mo- I changed my work to being self-employed. I set up a, an IT consultancy of my own on the basis that I couldn't sack myself. Clever. And I set about making myself so essential to my clients, you know, they would have to think twice or three times about just letting me go. Um, mm. So actually when I did finally take the, the the final step of saying okay this is you know on this particular day that i'm going to be christine forever that they had actually had a company meeting one of the clients and the managing director told the staff look this is happening to you know this person and we are going to accept her and if anybody has any trouble with that you come and see me wow so i i i have been incredibly fortunate over the years that uh, all the th- all the terrible things I knew could happen didn't happen, and in fact, quite the reverse. I've been terribly privileged in having been associated with people who have acted like the grown-ups. It's very interesting, isn't it? It's so different to coming out as LG or B in the mm. you know you, you really planned for it, didn't you? Yeah. You knew that there was one day where your old name, your old gender had gone, and you were going to present as Christine, and that was it. And you sort of you planned for that for years. Well, it's it's the thing is you cannot avoid coming out when you're trans uh. because unless you move overnight, then people are going to know that something's changed. Hmm. I think you can succeed in being gay or lesbian for a very long time without telling your colleagues. And I, well, in fact, I know that. Because they're not going to know what they're necessarily, right. in, they? in, in, in companies that I dealt with, you know, as soon as they knew, you know, Christine's trans, I would have the, the, the gays and the lesbians in that company coming and, coming and buttonholing me and making me their friend. Mm. And, you know, they weren't out. But so, in a sense, they were observing me with really real interest to see how their colleagues... Towards me. So it's interesting that you're keen to still be out because I know certainly for a lot of trans people it is just all about passing and they don't want to acknowledge their past gender and they don't necessarily want to talk about it. But, but why do you see it as well, an important I, thing to I, talk I, about? I tried, I, I tried that. I mean, I was mm. very fortunate in that very quickly I was able to, to pass and mm-hmm. go, go invisible. And uh, in a line of work where I was constantly meeting new clients, um, in, in a way, it was simpler, and it was simpler for my for my big clients who were sometimes recommending me to just you know let's all just accept Christine as Christine, mm. uh, and you know please don't bring it up because that will uh, make awkward conversations for us. 
Um, so there was a lot of encouragement. And then I was living in a very conservative part of Cheshire as well. So in a way, I felt it was safest to, to be in what we call stealth. Mm. Um, and then a number of things started to happen where I realized that if somebody isn't standing up and doing something, then it's never going to get any different. One of the characteristics of trans history is that all the way from the, the setting up of the very first support group in 1966, all the way through to the end of the 80s, so that's about 25 years, mm. nothing had progressed other than people having support groups where you could go and meet people and you could talk and you could you know, exchange anecdotes about how somebody had had petrol through their mm. letterbox. So what, nothing had progressed in terms of rights and society no, being complete thought, bastards nobody, to people? It looked yeah. like something, how can we change this? Because there didn't seem to be any means. You know, normally, if there's a social wrong, then you might go to the press and somebody would you know, take up your cause. Well, the press wasn't interested in that. They got mm -hmm. away of writing about us and it was the freaks on Sunday. You could go to an MP, but it was this was the time of Section 28. There were no votes for MPs in, in getting involved with, with, with trans people. So, yeah, how would you begin when everything is against you? How would you begin to change that? So, in your mind, it's important to be visible so that at least people know about you and can well, talk about what you. what changed it was reading the, the reports of two trans people who'd actually found something they could do. And both of them had ended up going to the European Court of Human Rights mm. to argue for the fact that they had no privacy because whenever somebody wanted to see your birth certificate, that would immediately out you. In those days, you couldn't marry in a way that uh, wouldn't stand out a mile. The government, at the time it was saying that gay relationships were pretended and not valid, hmm. would, was saying to people like me that I could marry a woman. It's, you, kind of, it's kind of crazy, isn't I it? I could have a same-sex marriage because, as far as they were concerned, you know, administratively, that was a, that was a, that was a, that was a <sighs> heterosexual marriage. It was, it was mad. So these two went to, went to court on the same basis. One is their the right to private life, and the other was their right to to marry because both wanted to marry in terms of their acquired gender, you know, what they changed to, uh, heterosexually. Mm. So Mark Rees, uh, a lovely man, if he was going to marry at all, he wanted to marry a woman. Mm -hmm. um, Caroline Cossey, a beautiful uh, model and TV hostess, if she wanted to marry, well, in fact, she was engaged to marry a, a man. And so, at the time, the government was said, no, you can't because right. it's so, not allowed. So they had reasons, yeah. valid reasons, to go all the way up to the European Court of Human Rights. The press reported it. And although both of them lost, they started a conversation and got people who were interested in civil liberties interested. People like uh, Sir Alex Carlyle, who was, at those days was the Liberal Democrats' home affairs spokesman. And he, in fact, asked to, to, to meet Mark and any any friends of his, and they went to, to meet him in Parliament, and he encouraged them to set up a, an activist campaign. So that was the point in time, in 1992, where suddenly trans people had an activist campaign. There was something we could do, was something we could work on, and a, we had a lever. We could use the law, because unlike everybody else, the law you know, doesn't do fake news, it doesn't do hysteria, it's interested in the facts. And 
the facts in our case were very much on our side. You know, it was a, a ter terrible injustice. So we could keep going back to the courts with different examples of people being discriminated or put out of work, and they would listen. And if they found in our favour at the right level, which they did, then government had to do something. So in 1996, the European Court of Justice ruled that it was sex discrimination to dismiss somebody because they were were undergoing or had undergone gender reassignment. Mm. That meant that the new Labour government in 1997 had to do something about it. And as a result of that, we got the first legislation to protect trans rights. And so it was really important for you to get involved in the movement. That's, that's then. right. I got involved in 1993. So, yeah, I was really at the heart of that and seeing you know, how, we, how we move this forward and how we exploit it. Gosh, you've come a long way then, considering you've got an MBE. Yeah. I'm, I, sometimes I look at that at the top of the stairs and I think, oh, yeah, OK, I'm official. Yeah. <laughs> and that's for your campaigning work? It was. It was, mm. uh, it was awarded because uh, my colleagues and I then got very closely involved with civil servants and ministers mm -hmm. to help craft the gender recognition bill in, uh, for a couple of years at the beginning of the noughties. And... Yeah, our job really was to make sure that the government could get it through Parliament without getting a scratch on them. Mm. Um, and so I think a grateful government and a grateful Queen decided <laughs> we should have this award. And yeah, my colleague Stephen Wettle, he had an OBE as well. Fabulous. So, and we accepted those because we felt... Because your instinct is to say, well, you know, this has got uh, empire in it and it's yes. got all sorts of bad connotations. But I remember when... Angela Mason, one of the first uh, chief executives of, of Stonewall, was awarded. It was an OBE mm. in her day, in around about 1999. And I remember that it was all over the, the BBC for a whole day and all over the press. And I thought, yeah, actually, this is a mark that what she did was worth doing. It was important. It mattered. And, and so, it got people talking about the issues yeah, again. That's so. right. And so, you know, in Stephen and I deciding to accept our honours, it wasn't really you know, for our egos. It was to say, okay, well, if we accept these, we are actually acknowledging and actually, and people are actually able to see that people who devoted their spare time to the rights of this tiny group of people, you know, that was something that was worth doing and was worth honouring. Wow. So we have come a long way, though, haven't we? But I think it's fair to say there's still a long way to go for trans rights in this country. Where do you think the campaign should be focused on? Where do you think... What, after, what should change for trans people? After, after the Gender Recognition Act, we did, it, we did actually sort of step back and say, well, you know, we were totally focused on that. What on earth do we do now? Mm. Um, and it took us a while to work out and we sort of made a little list and we said, well, there's still some legislation to sort out because it was incomplete. We were still vulnerable in places. So that's one thing. The way that the press reports trans people and the media features trans people, that's a big, important issue. Mm. And the other one was uh, the elephant in the room, which was that all our interactions with the NHS and with doctors in general were a complete uh, disaster area. So we needed to work on that as well. So for the first few years after the um, Gender Recognition Act, we, we sort of pushed on with those things. And then I think we, ended, we reached the end of our personal tether. I, mm. I had already burned out once 
and I was feeling like I was going to burn out again, we started to fall out with each other. And I felt by about 2007 stroke eight that it was time to let young people have a go because we were, by then, we were in our 50s. We tired ourselves out. And actually, we also you know, we want to have lives. So I actually made it known that I wanted to step down and retire mm. and that I wanted a new generation to come along. Because for, for one thing, even though I've grown so much over the years, you know, getting awards does help with your, your, your self-esteem, I'm still that kid who grew up in a world that thought that what I was was dirty and sort of icky. And I think that affects how you approach how vigorously you can demand full equality. Mm. Um, whereas young people, they've grown up with the rights that we'd won for them. They don't have any of that baggage. They actually see that, you know, I deserve this stuff. You know, young people are far more in your face. They are, aren't they? <laughs> so, the young people are amazing in yeah, 2019. I'm, I'm but... still so frigging polite. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me nicely on to my last sort of question, really. I'm sure, you know, all these rights have been won and it is brilliant, but obviously it's still difficult to accept your gender sometimes and people are growing up in difficult families and difficult mm. situations. What word of advice would you give to a young person struggling and trying to come to terms with their gender identity and not feeling able to, to speak out? Oh, goodness. Well, I, I guess I could say, you know, look at my own life. Mm. You know, it, it didn't have the best of beginnings, but look where I've ended up. That you can be the person that you're destined to be. But don't feel that it all has to happen straight away. Take your time. And I know that's a very difficult thing to say to a young person, but actually spending the time like I did to to actually organise my employment so that I wasn't going to become destitute. You know, to, to, to plan, okay, I'm going to do this. What are the steps I need? Treat it as a project. Mm. And along the way, of course, learn about your own history. Um, yeah. Oh, hang on. Is this going to be a mention of your book? Well, I... You might, you know, you might as well. Did I do well? <laughs> I was trying to be so... so cool. I was going to bring but it yes. in anyway, Christine. Yeah, Don't well, worry. Yeah, I mean, there I'm a are, true professional. Other books are available, but <laughs> certainly start with this one. Trans Britain, yeah. before creating it, there had never been a book that could just in one place tell a trans person or their family or their allies, you know, what we've been through. That story I've just told you... Hmm. And I think it's an inspiring story because it's full of so many really good role models of people who've grown up at each stage of that. And I think if you've read that, then I think you'll know how to you know, manage your own transition and you know this, this really exciting journey. Because I think the message of hope would be that you know, you might think of being trans as being a bit of a bummer. You know, it's a bad hand to be, to be dealt. Hmm. But actually it isn't because... We all get to do something that the vast majority of human beings never get to do. You know, most uh, most human beings get issued a gender when they're when they're born, and they're supposed to stick with that. So they grow up, they live their entire life experiencing only half of what it is to be a human being. Now, I didn't much enjoy experiencing the other half, mm. uh, although you know it's 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 great to have spent some time in the boys' showers, because I learned a lot from that. <laughs> but uh, And I had the perfect disguise. I think I understand gender on a level that 
I guess other people may, may not do because of that experience of seeing it from both sides. And there's so many layers to that. We could do an entire other podcast to it. But as a result, and because of the person it's made me struggling through hard times, finding resources, finding and being surprised by what I could do, I would never trade it. People might say, wouldn't you perhaps wish that you'd been just been born a girl and grown up and done the usual stuff? Well, yeah, that's 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 one way of living a life. I won't decry it because that's what you know, half of the population gets to do. But I've actually thought I'd been handed a really bad hand. But actually, it's turned out to be such an exciting journey of discovery. I'm a better person than I could ever have been had I not been challenged in this way. That's such a beautifully optimistic and positive way to end. So thank you so much for talking to Coming Out Stories, Christine Burns, MBE. Thank you. And get the book. And author of? Trans Britain. Trans Britain. There you go. (laughs) Big thank you to Christine for sharing her Coming Out Story and also quite a lot of trans history. Don't forget you can find out more in her book, Trans Britain, Our Journey from the Shadows. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. We'd also love to hear from you on Twitter. You can find us there at Come Out Stories. I'm Emma Goldswell, and Coming Out Stories is a What Goes On media production. Next time, you'll meet GJ. Her parents are from Barbuda, near Antigua, and she really struggled with being a lesbian because of her Rastafarian faith. She was actually outed while she was living in Leicester by the Caribbean Times. I wasn't so much annoyed, I was more um, worried because, like I said, I wasn't out. I was still coming to terms with my sexuality. I knew that my parents read um, the Caribbean Times, so I did actually phone them and said, uh, oh, guess what, I'm in, the, um, I'm in the newspaper. And they're like, oh, they thought it was about my poetry. And then I'm like, but I happened to be walking in front of a black lesbian and gay banner, and I remember my mum saying to me, are you gay? And I remember saying no, you know, because I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready.